Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Tobias Wright and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. All right, tonight, in a recent article in the Daily Telegraph newspaper in London, Royal Opera House Chief Executive Alex Beard said the inclusion of the word royal in the name of his company, is, quote, off-putting to the general public. So, what's in a name? Just how much does the identity of an opera company rest on its title? That's next in Chalk Talk. About 9.20 p.m., two-minute drill. You get everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land and our team's hot takes on those stories. Plus, creative consultant Oliver Camacho joins us live via phone for a Monday evening quarterback doubleheader. He and Weston are going to fill you in on recent performances of Mozart's Domineo and Puccini's La Boheme at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And, of course, you can call us on air, get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at... Opera box score. We got a really loaded show for you tonight. We got a great crew as well. Tobias Wright is back. I'm back. They say go west, young man, and that's where I've been the last couple of weeks. I've, <laughs> I've been traveling west and and then further west, and it's good to be back. So you were in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I made my way there. Yeah, I was in Mexico on in the Pacific yeah, Ocean. Yeah, yeah, and I made it back. D- did you get any uh, Montezuma's revenge? I did. Okay. Yes, do actually. You, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Weston Williams, have you ever had Montezuma's Revenge? Uh, no. You probably, you probably never <laughs> left the U.S., dude. No, I, 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 I haven't. I mean, you know, Toby went west. I'm still here. I haven't moved anywhere. I have Wait, been out of the country, I though. think the Montezuma's Revenge you're referring to, I'm thinking of tequila. I oh. think you're talking about other things. Yes. Oh, no, no. No, everything. My body was fine, George. There were a number of Montezuma's. My body was fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can't believe you tried He's to bait fine. Me. He's yeah, okay. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> uh, Oliver writes in. He says, Justin Tucker missed the extra point kick yesterday. Yeah. I don't think Oliver could tell you who Tucker plays for. No, but obviously it was a big enough sport. <laughs> Justin Tucker is one of the best kickers in the NFL, and he missed a kick. He missed an extra point yeah. yesterday for the first time since high school. Yeah. He's been in oh, the league dang. for 10 years. Like, that's an incredible stat. And it, it, it uh, ultimately, not that kick, but being down by one cost uh, it was the Ravens the game. Yeah, the Ravens the game. Yeah. Also, the Kansas City Chiefs are the best team in football. I haven't been able to talk about them since I've been gone, you guys. <laughs> Toby, you say here that, uh, this is just in our rundown, that Matthew Polanzani sang the national anthem at the Bears game? He did. He sang it yesterday and then sang Ido Maneo. How was it? 
the national anthem. He sounded fantastic. <laughs> no, it was really cool. I, I saw it on the Twitter machine um, and was like, hey, there's a friend of the show. And he did it. Well, Looked great. Was handsome. <laughs> we'll get to a Domineo in a second. Yeah, we will. <laughs> Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to tonight. George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, and Weston Williams, Oliver Camacho on the show a little bit later. Alex Beard, the chief executive of the Royal Opera House in London, said the inclusion of the word royal in the name of his company is, quote, off-putting to the general public. He went on to say that the Covent Garden Opera House suffered judgments about its title, with those who are not familiar with its work fearing it is not for them. Those comments were made ahead of an unveiling project to open up the building, and indeed this project is simply called Open Up. It's a three-year process. It's now complete, 27 million pounds spent. New cafe, new bars with Wi-Fi, refurbished restaurant. It's all to entice people to to come into the building. Open windows into the building as well. Exactly. Architecture, they wanted to really make this building transparent. And, And he said that the title of the company had three problems, and those problems were <laughs> royal, opera, and house. <laughs> I'm going on to quote Alex Beard here. Each of those words is charged, he says. They say this place is exceptional and high quality, but if opera isn't part of your world, and the royals are by definition other, and this is not your house, it can be a bit off-putting. So, Weston, let's let's kind of take a, a, a larger step back. Yes. What kind of a convention do you see when opera companies are coming up with names for their institutions? Some of these institutions, of course, have been around for decades or even hundreds of years. But Well, yeah, it, especially the uh, Royal Opera House. It's been up there since the 1700s. The current building, I believe, is 1858. Don't quote me on that, but uh, middle 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but... Y- Oftentimes you see that, you know, throughout most of history, uh, if you're an opera house, you got to have opera in the title because, you <laughs> that know, would help. it helps, you know, it's like, what, what is this if it doesn't have the word opera in it? So what, a lot, what most of the opera companies, I think in the U.S. at least, if you go around, it's going to be uh, opera, insert name of city here, and they just kind of shuffle it around <laughs> that theme. Uh, like, for example, Opera Philadelphia. Portland Opera. Uh, opera Birmingham. Los Angeles Opera. <laughs> if you want to get real fancy, you can throw in Lyric. Lyric Opera of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> One company Boston. that does stick out to me, though, that, that doesn't have opera in the title is um, Yuval Sharon's company in Los Angeles, which is called The Industry L.A. What they do is opera, but they don't have opera in the I title. Like and it's a very <laughs> respected organization. I feel like it feels like kind of a trick, though, because, you know, you walk into the industry. <laughs> what are you guys like, doing tonight? Go to the industry? What's that? <laughs> the opera? <laughs> now nah, we'll pass. <laughs> well, I think that is there is something to be said for uh, uh, the, the possible rebranding there. But y- you, you do want to have, you know, generally speaking, you want to have opera in the title so people know what they're, what they're in for. Um, most of the time, uh, what, what I think you see, like, for example, the Lyric Opera, opera of Chicago, uh, anything with lyric in front of it, uh, anything with grand opera, uh, anything with light opera, back when... It's like Florida Grand yeah, Opera? Yeah, spe- okay. like that. When, when you have a bunch Ohio of different light opera. opera companies uh, going in the same general area, what opera companies did was they would distinguish themselves not through any... Uh, clever names, mm-hmm. but they would say, this is the kind of opera that we mm-hmm. do. We do light opera. We do grand opera. We do 
lyric opera, which is that sort of nebulous in-between space, you know. But of course, at, over time, those definitions started to matter less and less, particularly when in many p parts of the uh, of our country, the United States, uh, a lot of the other competitors kind of went out of business. They became the only opera company in the area. So, so initially, the brand was really defined by the type of repertoire that was done. Exactly. Initially, type of repertoire and, uh, and often who was in charge, who owned it, who patronized it, for example, the Royal Opera House in that case. Um, but y y as a result, you do have sort of these um, very sort of dry, almost almost like numerical kind of, uh, d this is not in your name of your company to express your identity of your company. It's sort of a just an identifying series of adjectives and locations to help you determine what this opera company is. It wasn't an advertisement. It was just like, this is what we are. Uh, well, and it would be hard for an opera company. So to the point of the Royal Opera House wanting to rebrand, I mean, we don't have any place. We don't really have a – we have Washington National Opera. Yeah, We have the Metropolitan, which I think is probably the closest to getting to the Royal Opera House in that it's, like, the closest to being, like, the big, rich opera company that you're not welcome at. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> as like, And nobody would want that as their title. But and to the point that uh, Alex Beard, this is what he's saying, is, like, Royal Opera House s does differentiate us from – theater on the corner particularly and they're trying to say we want those people who would go exactly. to the theater on the corner yeah. to come to us here at the royal opera house and it is it is it is tricky because i i think with the royal opera house you have obviously these many many uh decades centuries of uh, of identification of notoriety of great well, that's performances true. Yeah, uh, it, sorry that, that is quite true um but but now in the 21st century i mean the monarchy is not, uh, monarchies in general are fairly frowned upon <laughs> here in the 21st century. Uh, particularly in England, there is a debate uh, right now. Uh, all of my English friends have had at least one conversation with me about the royal family, and most of them fall pretty uh, on the negative side. We should be getting rid of these old, out-of-date institutions. The fact that we even have a royal family is a, is a anachronistic travesty um, when, you know, uh, they're, they're getting all this money and all this prestige when, you know, we have other problems to do they've, with in the country. they started wars for the throne of their it, own family. You know, exactly. <laughs> even, even, though, even though the royal family in Britain has not had that much power in uh, since, you know, the Magna Carta, really, uh, <laughs> uh, there, is a, there, is, there is this sense that um, anything with the name royal attached to it, in England particularly, has an essentially problematic nature that cannot be fully compatible with um, the rest of normal people. So there is a little bit more baggage there than I think the U.S. model of city and type and yeah. what it is, you know. Um, and so I think the idea that uh, the ROH needs some rebranding might be true. But then my question is, what is lost if you get rid of that? You know, mm -hmm. because obviously if if someone from uh, Royal Opera House came out tomorrow and was like, all right, we're changing the name to something completely different, accessible opera for everybody uh, house. Well, they would get rid of the royal. I mean, that's clearly the real stumbling block mm -hmm. here. But but the royal family, you know, historically were, were patrons, right, of the royal. They were, and uh, I, I imagine they still are. I don't know. Sure, they uh, still are. Uh, uh, but you compare that to, like, English National Opera, right? That's right. the other big player, the sort of the crosstown player, ROH is in Covent Garden. English National Opera is at the Coliseum, which is kind of around the corner from the, the National Gallery. And you look at what they do, right? So all of their work is done in English. 
right. the English language. So that mm -hmm. takes care of the English part. There's something about, and then the third word, opera, obviously we've talked about that. So what does the national mean for English national opera, the way that Tobias mentioned Washington national opera? What is your requirement? Well, I think for Washington national opera, you know, it's in our nation's capital. And I think there's certainly, you have the Nationals there as a sports team. You have the Capitals there as a sports team. Um, I mean, so it makes what sense. What was their basketball team called when, when D.C. had a basketball team? They still do. The Washington Wizards. Oh, the Wizards, yes. Um, <laughs> come on, George. That was a low <laughs> blow. But they used to be the Bullets. That was a bad name. <laughs> that was I wonder bad when, name. They, when did Bullets change? That had to be sometime after Kennedy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, yikes. too yikes. soon. <laughs> I do think it would be hilarious if, in, if instead of inst to instill that same sort of you know local pride, this is our opera house, this is our city name opera house. They could just give the operas all mascots. I think oh that'd God. be an excellent. That'd be idea. so dope. Wouldn't the it be great? <laughs> what would the lyric <laughs> operatoria doors? Or so, I mean, like. <laughs> There's a, that segment is writing itself. <laughs> um, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. But to your point, what is Washington National? I mean, it, it considers itself, what does English National Opera consider itself? Like kind of the epicenter of, of their country or the focal point of what their country is or the, the UK. Um, but the Royal Opera House, the idea of changing name to encourage openness and inclusion is a very 2018 thing for an yes, opera house true. to do. Um, and it kind of signals... An understanding of societal change that is happening, um, that is inclusiveness, that is, you know, and you think of Me Too, you think of um, LBG, like everything that we've started to finally now accept of our everyday life. So it does acknowledge societal change and, and norms that are progressing, and that's a good thing. Um, but and, and it also acknowledges that the patrons, I think, this change, this rebranding and trying to get more people in the door acknowledges that the patrons who have financially supported these institutions for years are going to eventually lose to the most undefeated opponent of anything, and that's Father Time. And so they're looking <laughs> to the future for this rebranding, and then they want to make sure that everyone knows that they are welcome. And they may not be trying to procure money in this situation or donations but they want people to know that they are welcome to at least come experience it that you know experience right. the art form and i think that's a huge uh, that to me isn't how do we grow opera that's how do we grow our community which if you guys have heard me talk about opera companies a lot recently and i really do believe that fostering community has to be how you keep opera alive um so i think it's a it's a bold move but it's really not that bold it's what they should have been doing all along well, I think the uh, the actual program itself to make it more open is is excellent. Uh, I I do I do have some trepidation with the sort of the uh, precedent of of saying like okay we have to ditch the name uh, when you know I, I I feel like you could almost you know worry too much about that sort of thing. Like if the art is good, mm -hmm. uh, you can build a reputation based on that rather than your name. Of course, you do need right. to get people in the door, but I, I, I just... I mean, ultimately, the product is still the same that you're selling. Right. And that is opera. Yeah. And I, I, I so do... I agree with you there. Th this, this story kind of reminded me of one um, that I saw bouncing around my uh, social media feed okay. a couple months ago, um, which was... Which social media feed? Um, the Facebook. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Grinder. I don't know what goes on here. <laughs> just, you know, I was looking at my Grinder, and, you know, you just popped right <laughs> up there, this uh, this article uh, about a... Uh, uh, it was about uh, uh, how... Uh, it was suggesting 
that perhaps classical music, uh, I believe he's specifically referencing symphonies, uh, uh, symphony orchestras, should rebrand uh, the music that they play, uh, not as classical music, but as orchestral music. Because they okay, found that that people really really like like orchestral music. Like, like if you're like, oh, this is the orchestral version of a song. Oh, that's really cool. But they see classical music and go, mm, that's not cool. We don't want to mm. listen to it. And that <laughs> that fundamentally irked me on on a few different levels. One, because orchestral music does not equal classical music by that, that's a very reductionist way of doing it. True. And I think it's just inaccurate. And two, I think it does a disservice to, um, it feels condescending to say, oh, you know, you can't, you you aren't going to connect with this classical, classical, the the term classical is not a meaningless word. The reason it's used is because, you know, going back to the very beginning, uh, pre even the classical era, you know, the era of Mozart and stuff, uh, it was all going back to sort of this uh, or this uh, reinvention of Greek rational ideas, this sort of notion of the European Renaissance creating this new kind of music, this art, this art music that would go forward and uh, and and create this whole new canon of works that are supposed to be tied into some sort of greater sense of humanity. Now, of course, there's all sorts of debate of whether. How valid that is, you know. So it's a misnomer to call it classical music. Yeah, it, it is kind yeah. of. Uh, I, I there is nothing more lame than saying I'm going to go to the symphony tonight. Like, <laughs> nobody wants. Nobody wants. I don't to think hear that's that. lame. What's wrong with you guys? That is not sexy to me. You know, it's really so cool sexy. saying I'm going to the opera tonight. There's a difference. So maybe, though. maybe there's should, a difference, man. Maybe we should rebrand. It's instead of like the symphony or classical or opera, you know, we have like Chicago House of Blues. We could just Chicago House of Stringed Instruments, <laughs> Chicago House of Really Loud Singing. I do I at the Civic Opera Building. But I think this is the this is the kind of thing that I think uh, you can be overly concerned about and cr- end up sort of doing a disservice to the 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 uh, the history of the art form and what the art form actually is. Now, if we were to rebrand classical music as uh, European art music, I mm-hmm. think that would be maybe a little bit more accurate and a little bit more easily understandable than the term classical music and it would, would still describe what is going on in these symphony halls and these operas. But it do, but it's not maybe as clickable as orchestral music. But Well, this is the thing, right, is that to people who are not in this business, they're going to hear romantic music or modern music, so that is music that's composed right. in the 20th century, or contemporary music that's in the 21st century, and they're still right. going to call it classical. Right. Yeah, and I think... I think it's very tr- it's very tricky because I understand that you know people coming into it cold they 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 need more incentive to actually go they need to be essentially they do need to be tricked into going into the opera house into the symphony halls and I mean well that might be a little bit over <laughs> from a marketing perspective you do have to trick them into getting inside somehow you can do it you know in a more genuine way being. Uh, the only genuine well, way to get someone shows. into it. Yeah, you could do you good know? shows, but the, the only <laughs> way to get someone products. in into it is to personally go up to them and, and describe, hey, I this is really good. I think you'll really like it. Uh, that's the only honest way to do it. Any sort of PR is going to have some level of trickery going on. Would it be splitting hairs to say there's a difference between opera Philadelphia and Philadelphia Opera. Like, let's say the company had a different title. Let's mm. say it was called Philadelphia Opera. Like, I mean, is is that splitting I, hairs, or I just, do, is there a different vibe? Okay, wait. It's weird. That I think if you say Philadelphia Opera, 
there has to be a reason that it is representative of Philadelphia mm-hmm. rather than Opera Philadelphia. We are an opera company that does innovative things. We happen to be located gotcha. in Philadelphia. Gotcha. Plus, it sounds better. Opera, opera Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Philadelphia Opera. Los Angeles Opera. But Los Angeles Opera, to, I guess to that point, really has an identity that is like we've they've done. But so is Opera Philadelphia. They've yeah. done things that make them so uniquely themselves um, that maybe it doesn't matter. I think uh, when all is said San and done. San Angelo Opera. Where's like a really <laughs> random place that, uh, like, what's like the small? <laughs> <laughs> We're just looking up weird. Uh, tweet at uh, Opera Box Score any weird local opera company names at I us, mean, please. I'm just going down the list at Opera America here. Uh, I mean, Opera Delaware. That's <laughs> Anthony Bereze. Runs that thing, yeah. Man. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hating on it. I'm just, I'm just looking for, for companies that have opera first, and the bulk of them. Again, just looking down the list at Opera America, the bulk of them have opera as the second of two words. That is to say, the city first, mm. and then the word opera. Mm. I mean, Chicago I, Opera Theater. Yeah, that's true. A Chicago Opera Theater. That's a different ballpark, right? Because because now they're saying we we do two things. Yeah, we do opera the inclusion theater. of theater, like yeah. opera theater, St. Louis, that distinguishes it. It's a great. There great are lots title. of like because I think most opera companies do a play on that one little naming convention, yeah. and if they want to distinguish themselves, they can quite wittily add an extra word, subtract a word, flip the order. Um, I I do, do think, think that's not quite maybe enough in the 21st century if you're doing a new company. And Alex Beard said that Royal Opera and House were all charged words, mm-hmm. right? And I do feel like opera theater and a city. Can also be charged <laughs> as well, you know, for us. Yeah. But. Well, that's why the Royal Opera House. I mean, it gets away because it doesn't use the word London in it. You know, mm-hmm. the London yeah, Opera that's House. That's true. As opposed that would be to, that weird. That would be so weird. And I, I do. Uh, in pl- plus, that also it really collapses into an acronym really nicely. R O H. It's good. Huh. It's very. It's very pithy. Hey, yeah. let us know what your opera company's name is. Let go. And you can tweet us, of course, at Opera box score to keep that conversation going number in the studio 847-866-9687 if you want to give us a call as well big voices last night at the richard tucker award gala two minute drills next only on opera box score and wnur 89.3 fm live from chicago you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Last night's Richard Tucker Award Gala featured performances by Stephanie Blythe, Javier Camarena, Yusuf Avazov, Michael Fabiano, Christine Gerke, Quinn Kelsey, Angela Mead, Anna Notrebko, and Nadine Sierra. Bass baritone Christian Van Horn was the 2018 award winner. More on all those stars in one second. Tony Jonas Kaufman first sang at the Met nearly a decade ago, but he hasn't been seen on the stage there since 2014, having canceled each of his last three planned appearances. Met ticket buyers may be wary of Kaufman's coming run of four performances in Puccini's La Fanchula del West beginning, well, that was actually last week, October 17th. Nico Muli's Marnie, an opera adaptation of the Hitchcock film, opened at the Met as well. The story is about a beautiful, mysterious young woman who assumes multiple identities. Lizette Oropesa is set to make her debut at La Scala in a new production of Verdi's I Masnadieri. Corinne Winters will replace Oropesa in the role of Leila in Bizet's The Pearl Fishers at Santa Fe Opera this summer. That's going to be a role debut for Winters. Long Beach Opera has made Jennifer Rivera its executive director and CEO. Following two decades as a mezzo-soprano soloist, Rivera served as Long Beach's director of development and major gifts officer since the beginning of 2017. A fist fight broke out at a performance of Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 5 in Malmo, Sweden last week after a listener was sent into a rage by another audience member wrestling a bag of candy. And on this day, October 22nd, the premiere of John Adams' opera Nixon in China at the Houston Grand Opera in 1987. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Sports on WNUR. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Oh, the Dodgers and the Red Sox heading for a clash in the World Series. Do we care? Well, yes. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I love because, the Dodgers to win it. Well, I love baseballs. So you know this. It's interesting the, the the buzz around this World Series. Living where we live in the middle of the country, and we have these two coast teams, is almost non-existent. This is very true. The energy is so dead in my neighborhood compared to every other year I've been here. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, uh, you should be glad. I, I, I am. I can sleep. There's no fireworks going off. There, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Thanks for hanging out with us for the two-minute drill and, of course, bringing on our creative consultant onto the show as well, calling in live, Oliver Camacho. Did you guys talk about Justin Tucker and how he biffed the extra points? We, we did. did. We already teased you, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> how did He's you so find... cute. I feel so bad about it. I, I don't even watch football, but my roommate does, and I just happen to, like catch like the mm. recap of the day oliver you know we've talked about him on the show right yeah he's a singer okay okay cool i was like did you know that that was the same guy i, I assume i assume that's why, why oliver brought it up i was i, just, I yeah. didn't know I, I, oliver is an, i just wanted a sports a sports fact but yeah oliver is an expert you know he's never missed a expert. kick in his whole career for an extra I wonder point if, if they're gonna blame the singing if, if, we, if they're thinking maybe He's getting a little light in the loafers because he cares more about opera. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Oliver, have you ever been to the Richard Tucker Award Gala? No, no, I'm not in that. It's on your bucket. Isn't that on your bucket no. list? It's, I mean, I think it'd be cool to get married at the Richard Tucker Awards, you know? Right in the middle or of the pro- show? Or to propose, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then you have, like, a really great cast of people that are there to, like, 
congratulate you and sing happy birthday or something. I don't know what you, they would say. You can but, propose you know. to me there next year. Hmm. No, I think it'd be fun to get married <laughs> on, on Wimbledon Center Court or like at some revered hall like, you know, La Scala or something like that. So those are sort of my plans. So future husband out there, think about that. When, Toby, when you were looking down the list of the repertoire mm-hmm. that was performed last night, who was the composer that really stuck out to you? <laughs> it was Verdi. I mean, I like, and Oliver. Is that where we're going with this? Well, <laughs> just off the top, yeah. I mean, to okay. me, you've probably watched a Richard Tucker Gala every year for the last, I don't know how old you are, 12 years old. Um, <laughs> and, but like, to me, like, I, you know, all the famous YouTube performances, you know, when you're looking up old singers, you see what yeah. they did at the Takagala, and there was so much verity on this program, and I actually kind of liked it because it was, it made a lot of sense to have that style of music and with the singers that they had. I don't know what your thoughts were, if any, okay, on that. Well, let's, let's back it up a little bit. Back it First up. First of all, con- congrats, we, I mean, this is not news, but congratulations to Christian Van Horn, yep, who yep, yep. So, sort of we feel proprietary about him here in Chicago because he spent so much of his career uh, here at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and I've always been a fan. But let's be honest. I mean, at least for me, it's hard to get excited about bass baritone repertoire. I mean, there are some amazing things like Escamillo's aria and like, well, maybe that's it. <laughs> As a bass baritone, I'm very offended by that, Oliver. But one of one of the great pieces for a bass, and I don't know if Christian Van Horn is technically a bass. He's more of a bass baritone. Yeah. Is uh, King Philip's uh, Lament from Don Carlo. That's real my good. Momo. That's one of my favorite arias for any voice type. So thank goodness that uh, Christian Van Horn got a chance to sing that. But uh, he opened the concert with um, an aria from Nabucco. And, yeah, Nabucco is, is cool, you know. <laughs> um, but I don't think anybody remembers any of the tunes from that show except for the famous La Pantera Chorus. True. Now, there was really good red meat on this program uh, with Christine Gerke. Mm-hmm. She sang the uh, Easter scene from, uh, like, the... the uh, in the Jamo scene from a Aristocana, which is great if you have a chorus and she, you know her huge voice singing over the chorus. I cannot. Wait. I haven't heard it yet. I haven't watched it yet. It's on my list. It's of good. I, I I I kind yeah. of uh, jumped through. Uh, we do have the uh, the uh, the entire thing posted on our website, I believe, or our Facebook page. On our Facebook page, yes. we have a link to the Medici TV video, which usually. When they post videos like that, they have an expiration date, so try to watch it as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. But uh, typically, these things are converted to a, a PBS broadcast, and probably not until like January or something like that. It'd be a nice little so the, uh, New Year's Day treat for you. <laughs> yeah. So the red meat on the program was definitely Christine Gerke singing Cavalier uh, Rusticana and also one of her specialties, Strauss. She sang Escape uh, Dein Reich from Ariadne of Noxos. One of my favorites. Um, and then there was some a more unusual repertoire. Um, mostly because Nadine Sierra and I think Javier Camarena, who are, um, you know, well, Javier Camarena, I don't know what he was doing there, but um, <laughs> Nadine Sierra won it last year or the year before. Um, she's really interested in, in, you know, new repertoire and repertoire from Latin American composers or whatnot. She sang like a Spanish aria from some random Barbara Seville by Jimenez and Nietzsche. I've never heard of it before. I'm sure it was beautiful. And Javier Camarena sang some old school really, really old-school, obscure, bel canto, uh, Manuel Garcia, and Nicolo Zingarelli. So I don't know if that was good or not, but it was definitely probably challenging there re- for... There are recordings of him singing the Garcia on Spotify, uh-huh. and they're actually pretty good. I don't cool. know if you're a, if you're a Camarena fan, but... Oh, I am a Camarena fan. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> you just Blythe. didn't know what he was doing there last night. <laughs> well, speaking Stephanie of... Blythe sang um, uh, the Habanera. She wasn't yeah. supposed to. Uh, Anna Natrapka was supposed to sing Pache Pache Mio Dio, but she didn't. Do we, so know, do we know why? Anybody? No, no there were, um, maybe there's... because she's singing too much Aida and she's tired. I don't know. <laughs> it was it was really odd. I, I feel like uh, uh, like people were like checking their programs. You, you could hear if you watch the video, you can kind of hear them rustling when when, yeah. <laughs> when that part happens. Um, and um, then, excuse me, but um, it says Anna Natrapko. <laughs> Where's Anna? Uh, and then, of yeah. course, she brought uh, her husband along with her, uh, uh, Yusuf Evazov. Yeah, and now let's be honest, that's the only reason why he was on that program. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Probably in her writer, you know. Oliver, it, the, like, the performance of him singing Provatore, mm-hmm. Di Quella Pira, was actually really good. And good. It, it's on YouTube, and I was pleasantly surprised because you get to the, and, and he actually repeated. Uh, the end, which the I, yeah, the cabaletta, which was interesting. It, it sounded great, and when he did it the second time, he really lowered the dynamic. Yeah. Um, and he sounded great because you know in Di Quella Pira, people are like Di Quella, do 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 do, and it sounds like yeah. they're shooting machine gun pee, and like he didn't do that. Yeah. It was great, and I didn't know who he was before yesterday. So <laughs> I know, so sure. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what a way to seize an opportunity. A star is born. Um, I don't know if you guys in Anna Trebko's shadow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys saw the uh, Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga movie, but you know, no, uh, maybe uh, Anna yeah. Trebko is like trying to make her husband into a star. Wait, and he's he's in that movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was ready for the opportunity. I I have to see it. Like I didn't see it, so I don't know. You know, it, probably yeah. It's opera box score on <laughs> WNUR 89.3 FM. Two-minute drill talking through the Richard Tucker Awards Gala from last <laughs> night. George Cedarquist here along with creative consultant Oliver Camacho plus Tobias Wright and Weston Williams in the studio. So another Chicago personality, Quinn Kelsey, uh, who did the Ryan Opera Center program. I actually mm-hmm. think Christian Van Horn did it as well. Um, he sang uh, Falstaff Aria, uh, Ford's Aria, and then he joined Van Horn in the famous duet from Ipuritani, uh, Suoni La Tromba. And then uh, Stephanie Blythe sang a bizarro Leonard Bernstein aria from like a <laughs> cantata, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, because, you know, it's Bernstein's birthday and we can't get enough of that. And then I think they closed the program with uh, Andrea Chenier duet with Netrepko. She came out for the very last thing. What a diva move. What a diva move! Oh, Give yeah. up her aria and come out to yeah. finish it. Also, yeah. Angela Mead and, and Michael Fabiano are part of the program, and I and Fabiano sang "Quando le sere al placido," which is for me like he's as he's stepping away from the more you know lyric repertoire and going more to the spinto repertoire. Possibly, I was going to say that's a that's a spinto move. Yeah, um, and we'll talk about Michael Fabiano coming up. Um, and Angela Mead is like showing up for bel cantos always, which is great. Uh, she's saying uh, a duet with Javier Camarena from Rossini's Armida. And I think she's saying some rando aria. I forget what. <laughs> the, uh, it had that much favorite. of an impact on you, huh? <laughs> no, no, I love her. Oh, she's saying she's saying something from Il Lombardi, alla primo crociata. She's saying O Madre dal cello, you know? Yeah, she's that's good right. at that stuff that nobody cares about, but she makes it exciting, so. 
Yeah, I mean that's what that's what you got to do with a uh, with uh, with a an aria like that. You need to find that one person who's just like super passionate about it and go for it. And that's one of yeah. the things I I, I kind of like about the Richard Tucker Gala because you know as much as a lot of the selections, you know, as we said before, heavy verity, um, you do kind of have like these moments where you get like these big singers of the day to just come in and just kind of do something fun, you know, something that they really like, and uh, I think that's always a really fun thing to see as just sort of a, an opera fan, you know? Uh, it feels has a very sort of sporty feel to it. I would it. be interested to know who, who made the choices on repertoire, and ultimately, you know, an artist has to make the final say, but that there was this, it's like someone had to set the tone and say we're doing... Oliver, did you not think it was crazy that there was that much verity? I know we get a lot of verity <laughs> no. all the time. No, but, but, I, I don't think so. I mean, like, if you look at past galas, um, this actually had a little bit more adventurous repertoire than previous ones and like verity is mean potatoes for richard tucker i mean they're they're trying to honor richard tucker right so they ha they have to have verity on the show because that was like his specialty you know so that's not a surprise is that also the reason why there wasn't a lot of english language rep on this program uh there rarely there rarely is on, on that i mean this crowd i imagine who goes to this thing i mean these are like the old old school mm -hmm. Peter Ginsburg was there yeah, the, the Jews and the Italians and whatnot, you know. And they don't really care that much about Handel or about, you know, <laughs> French Baroque or, you know, John Adams. You know, you're not, you're not going to hear that stuff on there. Like, when David Daniels was the winner, I think, I think he won it, um, he had to sing, like, Rossini, you know, like, just to, like, keep it interesting for those people. You know, they're not typically the most adventurous opera goers. They want to just hear Tosca and, you know big verdi stuff you yeah, know th that is the downside to those big girls i suppose they they tend to be you know everyone's all dressed up and fancy and going and they're they don't want to hear hear nothing new and fancy but yeah uh, so what is the equivalent in sports like we were talking about this before like oh to me it feels like the oscars of, of the opera world it's, it's okay so it's an all-star game for sure mm -hmm. but in my mind it's the nba all-star game because it's an event that encaps like it's every one of the biggest stars is there and then on top of the best players in the world being there celebrities go because they want to be seen right. and associated with those athletes and so you see you think of like the new york who's there it's the who's who and like i said ruth bader ginsburg there's celebrities there there's yep. highly politically influential people that are there and so i think it's the nba all-star game of the opera world that's absolutely yeah. right. I mean, look, celebrities do not go... To, well, the NFL doesn't really have an all-star game. They have the Pro Bowl, which nobody goes to. Nobody goes to. And then no one goes to the, the baseball, the hockey all-star game. Maybe it's home all about, Derby. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about the, the celebs. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, like, the, the fact that this is, like, crowning, you know, a singer as, like, you are being deemed, like, worthy of this award. So yeah. it's celebrating Christian Van Horn, but most people are going to end up talking about... Do you remember the last time you saw thing, Christian Van Horn perform? Yeah, he did Faust here in Chicago. Do you remember who you saw it with? Because <laughs> there was one time on the show you were like, I don't remember who I went to Faust with. And I was like, it was me, you a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> I go to so many things. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm one time, a very famous uh, critic, I won't say who, um, had an extra ticket to a show. And I was just standing outside. And he or she, like, scooped me up. And just I was his or her guest. And I thought, like, oh, this person is in love with me. Like, I'm going to court him or her, and I'm going to, like, you know, become, like, an important person in the, you know, music criticism business because I'm, like, his or her, like, kept boy, you know? And then and, you woke up. <laughs> and then, no, no, this, the first part of the story is true. 
But then the next time I saw this person, couldn't recognize me from Adam. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so tragic. Oh, man. We're yeah. going to get Oliver's take on two of the show's no, no, lyric in a couple it's seconds. we got a couple more minutes on this segment. Take yeah, it away, Oliver. Yeah, is not, is not going to take that, that much time. So let's talk about Jonas Kaufman coming back. Oh, yeah, let's do well, that. Well, Toby, you had a hot take on the Jonas Kaufman story. Well, he has canceled a lot all over the world. It's not just the Met. Um, but I really actually appreciated what he said in this. Some of it's been health, um, but like he was really transparent. It's like, dude, I don't want to spend six weeks away from my family, and I can't fault the guy. If he doesn't want to do a new mounting of a production, don't spend six weeks away from your family. I did think dropping out of the new production of Tosca was a little shady because it was super last minute and that was disappointing for a lot of people because it was very much the banner performance, you know. Um, but I, I really respected what he said here. And I'm, I, there was a recording, a preview of the recording. I don't know what the reviews have been for Fanchula, but I think he sounded great singing Que la Mi Creda. And I mean, it's when you have an artist like that who is at the height of his career, everyone wants him to sing. And everyone will throw whatever amount of money they can come up with to get him to be there. And to him, at the end of the day, you know, that's great. And, and you only have your career for so long and you only have your children that are your children for so long. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, no. I have major respect for what he said there. And it's not as if he's, you know, giving up on singing and just occasionally coming up for uh, a recital here and there. He, he's been doing a lot of work, particularly at uh, the uh, Bayreuth Staatsoper. Um, um, not Bayreuth, I'm sorry, uh, Bayernische Staatsoper. Um, and Bavarian State Opera. Yes. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and he's just kind of been like their star. They've kind of been, uh, he's kind of become the face of their company, even if, you know, uh, we don't see him much uh, in the states, uh, and it's just you know easier if you're if you're doing something in continental Europe, you know you can you can go home and uh, meet and be with your kids, you know, on the weekends, and you just yeah can't do that. And you can that. even drive home after a show. Yeah, yeah it's so nice. So uh, how big is how big is that house, the Bayerische? Um, the Bavarian State Opera. Oh, it's probably mm, twelve or fifteen hundred, maybe. Okay, so it's a midsize. Midsize. It's it's not it's not enormous. Okay, so I mean, let's talk about it for real. Like, Jonas Kaufman's career has been very strange. Yes. I mean, he started, <laughs> out, he started out singing, you know, like Monteverdi and who knows what, like, and, you know, smaller stuff. And then he just started trying everything out, like Degrieux, you know, Cavaradossi, mm-hmm. um, Parsifal, you know. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, his voice is defying category, you know. Yeah. And he keeps taking on bigger and bigger assignments. And let's say maybe he, like, got over his britches or whatever, or he got over his skis, you know? And um, I'm really bad with phrases like that. <laughs> and maybe he just got scared of some of the stuff that he had agreed to in the U.S., knowing that, like, singing Tosca in, like, a new production with Anna Netrebko that was going to be broadcast on HD, that it would show whatever stuff he's doing with his, with his voice. I mean, like, it's not a perfect technique, Mm-hmm. It's a very exciting voice. You know, sometimes he makes choices that are just baffling to people, like vo- like phrasing choices and like dynamic choices. Like, what? Nobody's ever sung it that way. But that's also what makes him a very interesting artist. But maybe some of the stuff that he does is because he's limited technically. I don't know. I really don't know. Well, And so maybe he just like got nervous about some of the stuff that he agreed to. And maybe he just wants to sing in smaller houses but and it, do less. To that point... In, in a, to an extent, I think he should be applauded for that. 
that's the yeah. kind of artistic integrity that I think we should have more of. Absolutely. And, and, I, and maybe it's true. And I hate to use maybe he's, quote unquote, scared. Um, I, that's, there's such a negative connotation with that. But I, I think the fear of your technique betraying you and you not wanting to let the people down who are paying a lot of money to see it, I, I, I actually appreciate that. And I also think it's it's easier to because take I've it. seen Thomas Hampson sing Parsifal at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and that crap shouldn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Not he wasn't Parsifal; he was in the show. Sorry, yeah. but you know what I'm saying. Going out for Thomas Hampson. Yeah, um, I do I'm think okay. I, I do think it's it's also uh, given what Kaufman likes to do the 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 limits he likes to test with his voice and his general. As an artist, I think those kinds of risks are more easily taken in Europe, particularly in Germany, Germany, particularly particularly at um, the Bayerische Staatsoper, compared to the Met, which is a very overly safe house in many ways, at least in terms of what they want. In terms he, of the programming, you mean? Ex- okay. Not just in terms of the programming, but in terms of the style, the, uh, the, the, the way things are phrased. Obviously, they make allowances for these big, for sort of famous singers like uh, like Kaufmann. Um, but I think, by and large, those are kind of accidental. Um, whereas um, uh, an environment like the Bayerische Staatsoper really, uh, really digs into those sorts of eccentricities and tries to bring them out. Whereas um, the Metropolitan Opera sort of you know, hangs on to them as a, look, we got this famous guy. You know what I mean? All right, yeah. we got 30 seconds. Oliver, final take on the two-minute drill oh, before we move we've on. we've got more time than 30 seconds. I'll give um, you 60. I'll just say that, like, you brought up this point before, George, that, you know, it also has to do with the way Americans produce opera, especially a place like the Met, where the production is its own animal and the singer's just dropped in, and they don't really get that much rehearsal time and time to work with the other cast members and you really are just expected to just deliver vocally. And on top of that, the musical product doesn't always have the highest integrity because there isn't that much rehearsal time. And a lot of these singers are singing these roles all over the world and just are expected to just be able to drop drop into a production, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've witnessed the system firsthand at the Met. I think that system is broken. I, I just... I think audiences are being cheated because these singers, they don't have time, as you say, Oliver, to really connect with other artists and make something unique in that rehearsal, in that performance over a long period of time. And I think... Anyway, congratulations to Jenny Rivera, co-host of Opera Now, Every Now and Then, (laughs) and wife of Michael Rice. Yes, on her new job. (laughs) (laughs) The La Scala. No, yeah. not at La Scala. No. She's, a, she's a Long Beach opera. Long La Scala Beach, will be down, will dip down the road for her. Uh, Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams are going to play Monday evening quarterback. That is coming up next on America's Talk radio show about opera on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Thanks for spending your Monday night with us on Opera Box Score. It's George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. And, of course, Weston Williams as well. A lot of sports happening in the fall. That's why it's my favorite season, my Michigan Wolverines, eking out a... Not even eking out twenty-one-seven. That's a that's a that's solid win over the Spartans on the road against that's a ranked team. Yeah. That is your rival yeah. that's exactly. trying to beat you. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Bears managed to find a way to to lose again. I mean, did we really think they were going to beat the Patriots? Hey, no, but I'm not a Bears fan. But I think Mitchell Trubisky is not actually good at playing quarterback. I, he's getting better. <laughs> I mean, sure. is he a, like a, a like a decade-long QB for the Bears? No, that remains to be seen. Pass or fail, here's Monday Evening Quarterback. It is indeed Monday Evening Quarterback. It's been a while, Oliver, since we've done one of these. Yeah, and I mean, we don't have so much time, but that's on purpose. And I'll just like <laughs> let, our, let our audience know that we're having some like soul-searching about what is our role in the opera world, in the opera criticism slash media world, and should we be... You know, reviewing shows, um, especially shows that are so high, so hyper local, that you know audiences that are not in Chicago would not even care. I mean, and that's talking abs- about a show like As One, which I think is important, uh, I'm very happy to talk about that. And but, if you have uh, an opinion on that, if you're listening, uh, feel free to tweet us at Opera Box Score. Let us know what you think about uh, uh, continuing to do sort of these local things. Of course, I do yeah. think that there's uh, a lot of value to be had in sort of discussing a lot of local shows, particularly when they are indicative of certain trends, both positive and negative um, yeah. in the general opera community, particularly in the U.S. Right. Well, we, we came here to talk about uh, the Pinnell production of Ida Mineo, which is, I don't know, 30 plus years old at this point. <laughs> that and was exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> many of you probably have seen it you know, with Pavarotti or with Domingo or with whoever else has sung it at the Met. And it's not, there's nothing really special about it at this point. And, you know, Pennell died, I think, in the late 80s. And I don't know how many revival directors there have been. Um, many. This current, this current revival director who uh, directed it at the Lyric, uh, I forget his name. David News. David um, News, he's the head of the staff directors at the Met. Okay, well, apparently he, was, he worked with Pennell. So he was one of Pinnell's assistants. I don't know if he was Pinnell's assistant on this show. Likely, or not. yes. But um, the long story short is that this this production was also being staged in the middle of the strike. So I'm going to give David Noose a pass and assume that 
he didn't have the right amount of time with the cast that uh, he should have had. Uh, there are some stylized action moments, you know, physical moments in the show that didn't come off very well. Yeah, Every now and then, there, there were very there are these strange moments where uh, where the entire orchestra would suddenly do not an orchestra the entire choir they would all do the same gesture towards. Uh, yeah the face of uh, Neptune. Neptune and it, yeah. it was very evocative of like a really bad moment in a silent film from the 1920s, yeah. uh, which I don't think was the original intention. Um, well, I'm fine with stylized movement, but it just has to look rehearsed. <laughs> exactly. And, and it, it was, it didn't organic, it didn't feel organic with the, like there were the, these little moments, these little like sort of uh, little one gestures and then you'd go another yeah. 20 minutes there'd be nothing else like that and then you'd do another exactly. weird gesture it was exactly yeah so much of the sh of the show just felt very static and then all of a sudden you would have like five seconds of movement and i was like what i don't get it like why <laughs> why, why can't the whole opera be like this you know and i think this is uh, as i was saying earlier i think this is indicative of a sort of a larger problem we have uh across not in just at chicago um but across the u.s where, particularly with larger companies, where they bring back these uh, productions by these famous directors, always from like the early 1980s or late 70s, um, without any consideration for whether that view of the work is still um, relevant to today's audiences. Absolutely. And um, I think this that that was the biggest the biggest and most glaring drawback. And it, it's particularly difficult with Idomeneo, which is kind of a a hard sell, you know, there, there's no... It's there's called hysteria, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's really, if your singers aren't amazing, you right. really get distracted by some of the not good staging. You know? Yeah, and I think the the weakest act uh, directorially um, was definitely the first act, which is the one you really need, you know, get people, keep people in their seats until maybe some of the better arias happen in act two. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just, it, it just didn't do that. You had to really be already committed to seeing the whole thing. Uh, and it, it definitely could scare some people uh, away. That being right. said, I do think it did seem to be well received by the audience that was there for uh, opening night. I mean, Chicago audiences are just so polite. I mean, that, they, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I do think that they, it did seem a little bit, uh, they, I think they, there was, I, okay, I, we've been bashing the production a lot. I think that the singers uh, were all uniform, uniformly very good. Uh, I'm not sure what Oliver thinks, but I'm sure he'll let us know in just a moment. Uh, Janai <laughs> Bridges, uh, I think, was the standout for the entire show. She was great. Um, she was Ilya. And, but it, it really was just kind of, uh, well, I also liked Polizzani for his stage presence because he was the, the, he was the only thing giving himself presence, not the production at all. Um, uh but the sing I mean, you know, it's all fine and good. I mean, the singers uh, in a Mozart opera, I think, are probably the most important aspect, but there was just so much around them that just wasn't clicking. It put a lot of burden on them that didn't need to be there to make the production uh, pleasing to the audience in any way. Well, I'll say it first of all, it's Janai Brugger. Uh, Janai Bridges. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that, Brugger. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, thanks Janai for correcting Brugger me. Janai Brugger is uh, a soprano who's been our guest on the show. And to me, she was in a different league than the rest of the cast, even in a different league than Polenzani. And I'm a huge Polenzani fan. Um, I don't know if he is, like, mature enough vocally to sing this. So obviously, technically, he could sing whatever he wants. But there's a certain sort of, like, I don't know, haggard or 
weather-worn or whatever you want to call it quality that I look forward to in hearing. Mm-hmm. Even now, I want to hear the age difference between, you know, the that character and the younger characters. And obviously, that's already established by the tessitura of the role. But I, I don't know. Maybe just my ears are are used to hearing older singers sing it. And Matthew Polanzani sounds as fresh as a daisy, you know. And supposedly he just <laughs> finished the Trojan War and like was shipwrecked, and he sounds like a million bucks, you know. So, <laughs> this is but, true, but I, I do think I do think he was very. Uh, he has this he has this presence on stage, which yeah. I, I remember the the first aria he had was the first time I really engaged with the with the production really right. at all. You know, um, yeah. I, 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 I was like, oh, I can feel myself not being bored by this overly symmetrical production from 40 years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. So then... So I don't, I'll say this, that, like, I think the production is actually, can stand the test of time, but it needs to be redirected. I Absolutely, think that 100%. Itself, it, that it works, you know? I'm trying to but figure it, out if the, if the strike, how much that would have affected the rehearsal process. Yeah, I mean... You no, know, we'll yeah. never know. I, we won't know. Yeah. What about what about to, for for Bohem? How did that oh, thank stack you, thank up? Thank you for asking. So we are now enjoying here at Lyric the um, production that's a co-production with Teatro Madrid and I think Covent Garden. I forget. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yes. Um, so it's a co-production and it's Richard Jones's show. Mm-hmm. Um, the second act, the um, you know the Cafe Mamou scene is a showstopper. I mean. The set is incredible for that scene, and there's lots of action happening on stage, so much so that the poor conductor can't make eye contact with the singers. Oh, and, no. there some, and there were some ensemble issues, but uh, let me just tell you that Danielle Denise tears this scenery apart. She chews it up. She <laughs> is amazing. She's I mean, singing Musetta. If, if you don't leave this show feeling like She's given you 110%, you know, you weren't watching. I mean, she is incredible in that scene. And I've never seen Musetta performed with so much blood and guts and, and nuance, too. And uh, I'm, you know, I've kind of had a weird relationship with Daniel Denise's career. I used to love her earlier on when she was doing a lot of French Baroque stuff and Handel. Then she got a little too cutesy for me and a little mannered. And I think the mannered and cutesy stuff still is there. But now she, like, brings her Daniel Denise personality to everything she does. And Musetta is, like, the perfect, perfect role for her. It might be my favorite Musetta I've ever seen. Mm. And anytime she was on stage, you could not take your eyes off of her. Tobias, you're going to go see the show when it comes back in January? This is correct. Yeah. Are you, you, like, disappointed now? No, uh, I'm excited to get to go see it. You know she dies at the end. What? Oh, George, spoilers. (laughs) Um, so yeah, yeah. Did no, I'm excited. And and if I hear if I hear Oliver say good things about a show, I know that it's something I'm going to look forward to. It's my favorite show I've seen at the Lyric, probably in three years. Wow! Wow! Yeah. All right, maybe I'll go it here see first. It. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. No, seriously. Um, and like the the set design in the first act, which is also the fourth act set design, I I sort of hated it. Yeah. Uh, so I was ready to like continue hating the show. But the second act is so strong that I feel like people should see second what the act possibility. Was, what, what about Act Three? Uh, say what? what? What about the set in Act Three? He didn't stay for Act Three. He missed the entire um, thing. Act Three was clever. It he was, was in the I mean, bar. It, it was. I mean, the, 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 they do a lot of set changes with the curtain lifted, so everybody gets to see how the set is being pushed around, and you even see the stagehands and stuff like that. So 
and they have the um, light uh, instruments hanging really low so the audience can see it. So it looks like they want you to notice all the work that's going into making the stage the way it looks, the way it does. And um, I, I sort of got into it, you know. Cool. Um, Bo comes back in January. We're yeah. going to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Weston Williams. Uh, Oliver, do you got a good call or a bad call? Well, um, I'll just say that, you know, Siegfried is going to happen here in Chicago soon, and Christine Gerke's in town, so if you're a fan, I feel like right now it's our job to, like, help Lyric Opera get out of this dark, dark spot that they're in and and really support what they're doing, so. Uh, I got a bad call. Act two of Bohem as a director is like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it would be. You got children. I've only done art. it as an assistant, and it's it's a total nightmare. It gives me the shivers even thinking about that. Yep. Tobias, right? I got a bad call, and uh, for all of the singers that listen to this show or whatever, uh, it's audition season, which is not a bad call. The bad call is application fees. I'm looking oh. for a job, and every job that I look for asks me to pay them lots of money to even apply. And I hate that. The system's <laughs> broken. I got a bad call. Uh, it's now gotten too cold for me. It snowed this weekend. My fingers are freezing as we speak. They're so cold. Help me. Help me. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The new general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if you're not a royal. We're back on Monday, October 29th, 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera headlines, our hot takes on those stories. Please join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.